that warm summer day we left Jefferson at on the edges of Monticello do not resemble Christmas Day, 1780, in Richmond, 60 miles east. It's improbable that Jefferson would be thinking back on his tenure as governor, but looking out on the Appalachians where we left him yesterday, how often did Jefferson daydream upon the blooming of what he envisioned as an empire of liberty? On that normally festive day, Jefferson informed George Rogers Clark of military movements and rendezvous as he prepared for an assault on Detroit. The empire of liberty would morph over the years. In 1780, after Clark's assaults on the Shawnee towns of Chillicothe and Pequa, he closed his letter with American independence still an unsettled issue. Quote, We shall divert through our own country a branch of commerce which the European states have thought worthy of the most important struggles and sacrifices, and in the event of peace on terms which have been contemplated by some powers, we shall form to the American Union a barrier against the dangerous extension of the British province of Canada, and add to the empire of liberty an extensive and fertile country, thereby converting dangerous enemies into valuable friends. While the specter of European war never completely waned in Jefferson's lifetime, where we sit in the story, it wasn't barriers or Canada that kept its continuity, but enemies and friends, and how one can be one one day and another the next. Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark, where we look at the history and historiography one day at a time. We are at Expeditions Pod everywhere. That's social media, Patreon if you want to support the show, as well as our website. You are currently in Mile Marker 3, Episode Jefferson 4, Looking West. Two major features arose prior to Lewis heading down the Ohio in 1803 that set the tone for how the United States would see the West and all its prisms. The first is European intrigue, which is what we're going to look at today, and the second is Native America, which we'll explore tomorrow. But we'll start with the British. There is no knowing who first dreamed of crossing North America, Bernard de Vota wrote, but it was an old dream in 1534 when Cartier first heard of a big river that would be called the St. Lawrence. Mackenzie had fulfilled the dream. That was 1793, and it would be eight years until his book of voyages of his 89 trip to the Arctic as well as his 93 trip to the Pacific would be published. If Jefferson had cause to be concerned back in 1783 writing to George Rogers Clark, then the clarion call for Mackenzie to lock down the Pacific Northwest by any means necessary before the Americans arrived must have felt like a declaration of war. Only... The British never heeded Mackenzie's warnings against complacency, while Jefferson, he sent the army. Jefferson may have known that the maintenance of the status quo is a more powerful impulse of empire than rapid change. Mackenzie's affiliation with the upstart Northwest Company wasn't and didn't rattle the Hudson Bay, South Seas, or the East India Companies, though all would disappear or, like the HBC, join with their rival in due time. In beating the British to Columbia itself would be a declaration toward Jefferson's empire of liberty. As Edward Gray writes, quote, As understood by Thomas Jefferson, its most articulate and idealistic proponent, if the British Empire had been held together by coercion and special interests, new Republican Empire would be built on consent. If the British Empire would have a clearly defined metropolitan center, this new Republican Empire would have no such center. 
It would sit like a halo over the collections of people and nations under its reign, a benign guarantor of rights and liberties. End quote. All the European powers acted as if they had more time, that the musical chairs that they had played for centuries with one another, typically at the rest of the world's expense, would continue indefinitely. In that liminal space, Britain would continue to brush up against the United States, namely in the West, in fleeting alliances with Native America. In 1812, the two countries would be at war, and there's a case to be made that independence wasn't really gained until the Treaty of Ghent in 1815. Unlike Britain, hanging out in Canada, dipping into the United States when they could, the French had effectively been ousted from North America at the conclusion of the French and Indian War in 1763. In lieu of handing over the Mississippi Valley to the English, they did a secret deal with Spain that remained in place until Napoleon's secret treaty of his own in 1800, which ceded Louisiana back to France. And in selling Louisiana to the United States, even if it didn't work out well for France, Napoleon said that it, quote, assures forever the power of the United States, and I have given England a rival who, sooner or later, will humble her pride, end quote. Of course, the French were allies during the U.S. War of Independence, but the French Revolution would crack the partisan divide wide open, as the previous divisions over monarchy and aristocracy were replaced by radical egalitarianism. After Washington's farewell address pledging neutrality, the XYZ affair, where France attempted bribes for diplomatic access, would kick off a massive buildup of the U.S. standing army in what's known today as the Quasi-War. And while that war would stay quasi and abate, the news of Napoleon and his retaking of Louisiana was alarming. But it's much the same as with the British. The histories of these nations began to betray any element of surprise. We'll see what Napoleon had planned for Louisiana and how a small island nation that took the name of Haiti in 1804 would thwart those plans. But like the history of New France and New Spain, the Americans would be too quick and too many. Russia proved to be the real wild card, but so much lay between Virginia and Sitka. Ledyard's expulsion from the country was mostly admin, but Catherine's designs to secure the fur trade and scout settlement opportunities, which she had laid out in the instructions for Joseph Billings' expedition, would come to pass by the time the Lewis and Clark expedition had gotten underway. Catherine died in 1796, so her son, Emperor Paul I, himself to be assassinated in 1801, granted the Russian-American company a monopoly over the Pacific Northwest in trade and colonization efforts, dominated by the exploitation of the fur trade. As mentioned before, there's two people that we're going to meet again as we head to the West, Alexander Baranov, a leader in the Russian-American company, and Nikolai Rezanov part of the first Russian circumnavigation of the globe, even though we didn't make it all the way around, before trying to establish trade relationships with Japan, which failed, then being sent to a dying colony named New Archangel, which he helped to save due to a timely trip to California. Rezanov felt, quote, it is very necessary to take stronger hold of this country, else we shall leave it empty-handed, end quote. To be sure, Russia's designs were ambitious, but like other European nations, colonizing another country isn't exactly easy, especially with the relative stability of Romanov rule. Sure, there were a few assassinations, but outside of Paul I, which was more of an inside coup, 
and Alexander II, who had ruled for 25 years before he was killed by a bomb. And there was also Nicholas II, who was killed along with his entire family by the Bolsheviks. What were we talking about again? Oh yeah, time. Speaking of time, Spain's was almost up. They had been in North America for nearly 300 years, but, or because of that, the Russian Empire ossified around them. I mean, there was a 16-year royal botanical expedition, led by Don Martin de Sese, that collected 8,000 samples and more than 2,000 specimens of plants that was effectively memory-hold upon completion, as the state had no ability to put this incredible feat to any good use. And it's not just history. You can read the correspondence of those in charge in the 1780s and 1790s because they got it. Perez, Miro, Carondelet, Trudeau, they all diagnosed the failures of execution, of imagination, of inflexibility. James Gardner is on the money diagnosing Spain's relation to the rest of the world. It was, quote, poorly conceptualized and simply inadequate. In part, this was a reflection of an overextended and weakened Spanish empire, and it was a reflection of failure to rethink some basic Spanish commitments, even in the face of some knowledgeable information about the American and European expansionary intentions, and to rethink Spanish interests in a way that moved beyond the focus on and protection of Spanish minds and interests in Mexico." End quote. It turned out that the Spanish had no resources or recourse to shift a large, sinking ship like the British could do, or like the French were trying to do. There's a reason capitalism is the most robust and insidious economic system on earth. It can change on a dime and is beholden to one thing, money. And if your home country supports that endeavor, it's a win-win. As such, Britain provided the native people of the Missouri and Illinois country with cheaper, better, and more convenient goods that Spain just couldn't. And while nobody likes the British and the Americans were the real threat, Spain continued to try to incentivize immigration, but they couldn't let go of that urge, that 300-year urge from the time that they stepped ashore in the Caribbean to culturally subsume whoever lived on their land. France had that problem too, and it led to the death of New France and the loss of not just the Mississippi Valley, but all of Canada. And as we'll see, revolutionary France never established anything long-term, so we'll never really know. Spain is ostensibly in control as Lewis and Clark arrive in Kaskaskia in November of 1803, but not for long. In December 1787, Agrippa contradicts Jefferson's visions of the West. Quote, Large consolidated empires may indeed dazzle the eyes of a distant spectator with their splendor, but if examined more nearly, are always found to be full of misery. End quote. Agrippa argued that those in the warmer climates, the South, are more dissolute in their manners and less industrious than in the colder climates, the North. He predicted that one region would cramp the spirit of the other. That's certainly one way to put it. He warned of a whole empire managed by one legislature, seeing the federal constitution as a step toward despotism, not unlike the Spanish provinces. He laments that it is impossible for one code of laws to suit Georgia and Massachusetts. Agrippa felt they knew a little something about that. The man behind the pseudonym is considered to be James Winthrop, 
great-great-great-grandson of John, founder of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. As war broke out, he was a librarian at Harvard and tasked with safeguarding the college's books. He would be wounded at Bunker Hill in between and survived to become a prominent anti-federalist. The idea of an uncompounded republic, he castigated, on an average 1,000 miles in length and 800 in breadth and containing six millions of white inhabitants, all reduced to the same standard of morals or habits and of laws, is in itself an absurdity and contrary to the whole experience of mankind. Before Jefferson could convey his own visions of Western exploration, settlement, and colonization, that whole empire of liberty shtick again, he had to puncture the notion that the whole experience of mankind was written in stone and not something that one can actively press up against. ¶¶ 